When Kerry started running for Senate, a few of us sort of knew the deal and we were sort of setting it up. And one of the things she wanted to get uh, get really adroit and, and smooth at was just public speaking, being able to deliver her stump speech like what, and so we were like, well, who, who's a, who's like a writer and, and a speaker who's, a, and, and we, so we were like, Bert can do this. So we introduced you guys. Actually, you, I think you met Carrie uh, before she announced, yeah, at my house before she announced her run too. Um, but, but you, you had, you worked with her and, uh, and she actually became a, a really great public speaker. Now, over she, had the, in her. she had it in her. That's why it was just that she didn't know some of the rules. Everything's got rules, right? Yes, the rules of public speaking. Once she understood what she had to do to project what she wanted to say, I think she was there, you know. Yeah. Late in the campaign, um, there was a day where uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came to campaign with Kerry. Uh, they initially went to Newark, to the University of Delaware, and then they came um, to, the, to the community center here at, at Riverside. And we went out to meet them. Huge crowd, obviously, uh, because the Kerry campaign was in full swing. AOC was a uh, you know national figure at this point, and they gave their remarks and in front of maybe a hundred people there. And uh, and one of the things that Kerry said in front of everybody was to thank Bert uh, for all the work that they put in getting her stump speech together in her mind, getting her s- settled with her public speaking, and you got the big you got the big call out. Uh, I think you were the only per- you're the only person called out. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, it was it was great. It was it was great to see that all come together. And and again, like you said, the friendship's still there. She was she was asking about you, knowing you couldn't come out, uh, but just asking how you were during the COVID and um, and trying to get a hold of you. She's at a some lovely point. person. Uh, this past summer, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, my great friend Bertram Monitz became an American citizen. After 77 years of roaming the earth as a professional immigrant, uh, he decided to settle down. Uh, when I asked him why he would do that now, uh, he replied that it was a stock market investment principle. He always tried to buy in at the rock bottom. I thought that was uh, pretty good. Uh, Bert literally has traveled the world. Uh, his writing spans a breathtaking breadth of subject from a biography of his mother and poetry to a renowned technical manual on welding and the definitive English language text on glass-lined industrial equipment. Uh, Bert is a true patron of the arts. Uh, he has produced amateur art cabarets at local establishments like the historic Jackson Inn and the Trolley Square Speakeasy Hummingbird to Mars. Uh, He is a great comrade of ours, and I am happy to introduce him as the guest of this, the 100th episode of the Highlands Bunker podcast. Bert, I'm so pleased to have you on. Thank you. This is a centennial edition. I do appreciate it, but you didn't read me my Miranda rights. Uh, Anything you say can and will be used against you, but there's no court. It's a kangaroo court. Shit. Well, (laughs) you know, my... um, I would have brought my lawyer, but uh, he wouldn't wear a face mask, and you know what happened to him. Yeah, well, speaking of that, I think um, what people don't know a little bit of the background, it's fair to say that if there were a real place, Highlands Bunker, uh, it would be in your basement. 
Um, we recorded the first dozen or so episodes there just to get a space and get this started. Uh, but we couldn't really mention it because you were having uh, issues with your immigra immigration papers and you were not supposed to be cavorting with subversives. Um, so we kept that all uh, real hush-hush. Um, and I don't think we were that subversive. I think it was fine. And by the way, they weren't issues. It was just following procedures. Procedures. Okay. Yes. In other words, I was shit scared of what you might do to my immigration. <laughs> uh, so I guess to start out, um, I mean, we have so many stories together, but I always like to, to start at the beginning. Uh, about a month ago, or a little over a month ago, I did a an episode with Alex Hess, who's a London-based writer. Um, he wrote uh, about the financial status of some of the lower league and smaller town teams uh, in England. And I mentioned you in the beginning, but you were kind to characterize my my little sort of humorous beginning uh, as taking creative license um, because I mentioned that um, you were born in South London in the shadow of Charlton Athletic Football Ground, but you were not. You were brought up there, but you were in fact born uh, in North Central India in Bhopal in 1943. Oh, uh, I was. Yeah. Yes. And how long were you uh, in India? I think I'm sort of interested in – there was a uh, – a fairly major border dispute and partition in that uh, area of the world uh, then. Um, but I know um, you you moved when you were, I guess, four years old. Mm -hmm. What memories or, or stories um, did you did you have sort of growing up in London from uh, from being born in India? And, and what were the circumstances of being born in India and then moving uh, to the UK? Well, the thing was that um, we were not. Indians, and we were not English. We were called Anglo-Indians. Anglo-Indians served the British Raj in India, you know, railways, clerical work, running the prisons, things like that. So it was a good life. We had servants, so I am told. And then along came Indian independence. After the war, the British decided to uh, shed their colonies because they were broke. And it was probably time to do it, even though it was over Churchill's dead body. Uh, the British. Funnily enough, elected a socialist government right after the war, after what Churchill had done for them, because, you know, the welfare state was overdue, I guess. So they sent a civil servant down to India, and he drew these boundaries. He'd probably never even seen a map of India before, because they decided that the only way to get out of India was to partition the land between Pakistan, it was called East Pakistan, and West Pakistan and India. So they began an intense migration of Muslims, of course, to Pakistan, Hindus back to India, and lots and lots and lots of bloodshed, million people killed. It was a tremendously bad time. And of course, the Anglo-Indians are sitting on the fence, neither Indian nor English, saying, what the hell's going on here? Fortunately, we had British citizenship, like all people in the Commonwealth at that time. So we decided to go to England. Uh, many Anglo-Indians didn't, and they live in poverty in India now. I'm afraid to say. Some went to Australia when Australia, Australia had a white Australian policy for a long time, from the mid-60s, so they wouldn't let brown people in. Then they began to let in, you'll be happy to know, Rob, Italians. Fine. Yeah, for, luckily, somehow the Italians were the first uh, sort of brown people to become uh, white in a lot of places. I yeah. think it was because of Michelangelo, but who knows? But the point was that we, um, we had to get the hell out. So my parents went to England, which was a very cold and un, un, I wouldn't say unhospitable, just unfriendly, because the British are a very tolerant people. And it was in 1940, 
47, I think, 48, sorry. Independence came in 47. So we had to put up a lot of privations. There was rationing. There were enough homes. So we moved into a house, nine other people initially. But my parents were Tories. They, they really wanted to buy their own home and they didn't really approve the welfare state. So I think they, they slowly hauled themselves up. But I did go to school in England. And I think that's where you wanted to talk about soccer. So we were near Charlton Football Club. We weren't in Charlton because we were in the, more the suburbs of London. But I did end up working in Charlton. But my father liked a cricket player called Dennis Compton, whom you know because you're a fan of cricket. And I do admire you for that. And Dennis Compton was a swashbuckling batsman, big hero. He did uh, brokery adverts too. He had nice hair. And he um, scored a lot of runs. But he was also an all-rounder. He played for Arsenal Football Club. In fact, the Victory Cup final, he was in the team that Arsenal won. Arsenal won that cup final. So that's how we gravitated also to Arsenal Football Club. And of course, you always follow your father when you're in his, you know, at his knee. And hence my long and loyal service to Arsenal. It's like marriage, for better or for worse, as you know. <laughs> I do know. I do know. I, I could bring up uh, the result this past weekend. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen a live table, but... Arsenal's Arsenal's North London rival seems to be doing pretty well right now, but I'm sure we'll have a lot of time to talk about that on the tail end of this. Well, that's when I'm leaving the room. But... <laughs> I know you couldn't take it. You couldn't take it. It's the Dangooners, folks. The, 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 the Spurs gave them a, a right good beating over the weekend. It was humiliating, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually, uh, and we've talked about it a little bit, but not a lot together. Just the, the general climate uh, of you being brought up sort of in post-war uh, London, you mentioned, you know, having to move into sort of like a rooming house with other, a lot of other folks because of a housing, housing shortage, there was still rationing. I assume um, even uh, as you became school age, there was probably still some destruction, um, you know, around and about, before, you know, what was it like um, sort of going to school as a schoolboy in, in, in post-Blitz, post-war London? Well, it wasn't that bad because, as you know, your parents protect you from a lot of stuff. So I was not, you know, I was never hungry. And um, I think that we were the only brown people at the time because this was the first wave of immigration from the Commonwealth. And so it wasn't like later on with England's quite multicultural now. You know, you look around and, you know, you get on a bus and you hear this Cockney accent. You look around, guys from West Indies, you know. So England is, has changed a lot since I left. However, at that time, we were the only brown people, and I wouldn't say we faced discrimination, but the British were still slightly superior, and there was a phrase they used for people from the Commonwealth called WOG, W-O-G, which stands for Westernized Oriental Gentleman. It was a sort of typical British term of contempt in that it wasn't really that damaging, you know, it wasn't harmful. But, you know, it gave me a little bit of a feeling that I was never really British, even though I've got some fabulous fabulous, fabulous English friends. And we used to go away, away every year, or some of these guys, you know, for a week somewhere or other. And we've had great times and, and they're wonderful people. But I would say that um, I never really felt English. So when the time came, in fact, it came earlier than my parents. Once they'd educated me and they figured I got everything I could done that they are supposed to do, they left for Canada. Later on, a couple of years later, I decided that 
it was time for me to go to Canada. So it was a natural segue. Yeah, so you went, you went to university and, and did your training and began work um, in the 60s in, uh, in metallurgy uh, and, in the, and trained in the Midlands. But so, you're, so you were living um, in, in Aston and Birmingham and, and, uh, what, and then your parents then were the first folks to move to Canada? Um, they were part of the first wave. The, the very first wave was like immediately after independence, 1947. We could left. We left in 1948. Right. I mean, when you moved from from, uh, I'm. T- I, th- I thought you mentioned your parents when you moved to Canada. Oh, my you... parents left for Canada in 1968. Okay. So you. So it was. Uh, and and you didn't leave for Canada until 70. So they were. They, were were they were they retired by then or were did did. Oh no, they were still more or less in the prime of life. You know, the 50s or so. Right. And uh, they got jobs. Actually, at the time, Canada was a sponge for jobs. You know, they would uh, they wanted teachers badly. My mother was a teacher, and they they would pay they would forego taxation. So a lot of English girls I knew over there in Canada when I went, they were there just for two years because they got a tax holiday to teach because they were so short of teachers. So Canada at that point was starting to fill up with immigrants, and I did notice a change when I arrived there. Yeah. So what got you, was it, uh, was it something that was an, uh, an, an interest of yours, the sciences, uh, or was it sort of, uh, I don't want to say coincidental, but what got you into sort of metallurgy and, and chemistry and, and, and writing? Well, my parents did that to me, and uh, I'm kind of grateful and I'm kind of not, because I want to be a journalist. But they said, you can't be a journalist. They write left-wing stuff, and that's the end of that. So they said, you've got to be a scientist. So um, they stuck me into a place to do chemistry. I didn't like chemistry that much. Sorry, Owen. And um, I, Owen's a PhD chemist. He's also yeah. a PhD plumber, by the way. He installed uh, two B-days in our house, which meant that we never felt any shortage of toilet paper during this pandemic. I just wanted yeah. to pass that on. <laughs> I, I know he was going around uh, right at the beginning, uh, masked up, and uh, he was he was the bidet man just in case there was a, a run on the loo roll. That's right. Owen, Owen has probably saved this country anyway. So I I went to do this chemistry stuff. And I said, oh, I can't do this. And then I discovered metallurgy, or as we call it in Britain, depending on which class you come from, metallurgy. If you wear a cloth cap and I've got dirty fingernails, you do metallurgy. And if you are doing research, et cetera, you're, it's metallurgy, metallurgy. So I call myself a metallurgist, just you know, show off a little bit. I, I then started metallurgy, and I really liked it, you know, and I like subjects around it, like corrosion. So you can immediately tell that I, even though I love writing, I was able to do this metallurgy stuff. And in fact, I went to Sheffield, the mecca of metallurgists, Iron and Steel City, the Pittsburgh of, of the UK, to do compulsory industrial training, six month session there. But the rest of it was spent in Birmingham, which is also a center of metallurgy, but it's iron, it's a non-ferrous, non-ferrous yeah. being brass, aluminum, etc. So then uh, you did work in, in back in Charlton for a time. Oh yeah, it was great. So that, yeah, did you feel like you had you sort of uh, come home, you know, the, 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 the boy comes home to the, to the, the childhood spot the for local a while? Team. Yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, it was a wonderful place. It was on the River Thames called Anchor and Hope Lane, and it was a foundry. They made ships' propellers and big stuff, big ships' propellers. 
and the valley was just up the road. So yeah, we were in the shadow of the valley. There you go. So your next big move was the move to Canada following your, your, your parents um, in 1970. I do, and, and you made note of this too, I, I don't know whether this becomes a theme, but you're, you're, you're following, you're following uh, controversy, political controversy, because this was about the time of the Quebecois independence movement. And so you, I guess you, you, had to, you had to go and see what, what that was all about. Um, but you moved to, uh, to Toronto in, in 1970. Um, what was what was it like, um, and what kind of work were you doing there? Well, I got to work for the uh, it was called the International Nickel Company, and obviously they they mined nickel and copper and precious metals in the northern part of Ontario, a place called Sudbury, and in Manitoba, in a very isolated place called Thompson. And my job was really to inspect equipment and work on issues in developing new uh, ways of extracting nickel. So I would go up to the mines and mainly the refineries, not so much the mines in Sudbury and Thompson doing that sort of work. But basically I was based in Toronto um, on process R&D. And um, that was a wonderful company to work for at the time. As you know, companies go up and down. They were blue chip at the time. And I always remember this, but once I was talking to a guy at an airport, we're flying something. And he was a VP of Union Carbide. So we go to go on the plane. He goes in the tourist class, or whatever they call that class, and I go first class. Because at that time, they made so much damn money that they, because of nickel, nickel was a very big commodity, that everyone flew first class. So I've seen corporate, you know, beneficiary, beneficence, and I've seen the other side. But I realized then that in capitalism, there are good times and there are bad times. And this is just the case. But eventually, um, INCO didn't do that well. They, they, they're now owned by a Brazilian mining outfit. They still make a lot of nickel. I mean, the mine, that was the biggest deposit of nickel in the world because of the, the rumor has it that a meteorite crashed there years and years ago and nickel got pushed out of the ground. Anyway, that's the story. So then, uh, then your, your, your first... Uh, venture uh, to the to the uh, the lower 48. Um, I assume you probably had been to the United States prior to moving to Texas in 79. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, we've been we crossed the border for social life a lot. Yeah. So and and that was uh, when you uh, like like many young American men in this area of your generation went to work for uh, for DuPont and Moore's company uh, in, in Beaumont, Texas. Um, that's a, that was a big move. I, I, everywhere you've you've lived had been, uh, I think you know Toronto uh, being a sort of cosmopolitan, um, large cities in England. Uh, also the same sort of weather. Uh, what was Beaumont, Texas like? Did you have any sort of culture shock? Well, it was a huge culture shock. And the, the funny thing is, when I applied for the job, they interviewed me in Wilmington, and I said, "Oh, this is not a bad town. It's fairly near Toronto." So. They were going on and on. They kept talking about Beaumont, Texas. And I said, well, where is this job? And the guy said, listen to me, son. He said, son, if you want a job, stay in Canada. If you want a career, go to Beaumont, Texas. I said, oh, give me a map. I'll take a look. <laughs> yeah, that's that's quite a lot further, uh, further from Toronto. Uh, 
Now, had you been in the, had you been uh, sort of in the American South or in the Southeast and anywhere, like, had you been there before? Or, or like you said, was it like finding it on a map and saying, this is where we're going? Well, before, as, as anyone would, America is a very popular destination for tourists. We've been down to Florida, New Orleans, but really nowhere else. And New York City, of course, and stuff around there in New York State. So the South was quite different, I must admit. I, I wasn't totally ready for it. But one thing did impress me about Texas was the work ethic of the people, especially the hands who ran the plants. And I, 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 I think I've always been, unlike my parents, I did start off quite right wing, but you know the needle's been shifting slowly over the years, as it should. And I think I got great respect for the working man as a result of, of that time in Texas, because we really worked hard. There were a lot of plant shutdowns and we, you know, we got the things running again. So it was just a tremendous feeling of accomplishment. So that, that's my takeaway from Texas. I mean, there were things I wouldn't want to, well, uh, for example, there's a town called Vida up the road from, from Beaumont and Interstate 10, and they got two chapters of the KKK there. You know, so there was a lot of discrimination, but in general, they, it was a place where people seemed to know where they belonged in the social order, you know? I suppose two chapters of the KKK has a way of keeping people where they belong in the social order. It, it certainly helps. It certainly helps. Yeah. So that was, uh, you have two daughters we haven't uh, mentioned, uh, fairly close in age. I, they, they must have been, were they born, they were both born in Texas. No, one was born in Texas and then one was born in Delaware. Okay. I got, I got transferred to Delaware, as most people do. You come back to um, Mecca, yeah, whatever it's called. You do your Hodge here and there. Uh, yeah, you do, you do your time. Yeah. Seven years. I did, I did a seven-year sentence. But it, I, in the end, I was there to drag me away from Texas. Even Loretta probably saw me more when I got back to Delaware because I was working so much. Yeah. And then, so you moved uh, initially to Newark. So I guess your your youngest daughter was born when you were in Newark. Yeah, we were in Mendenhall Village in Newark area. Yeah. And then we moved to another place in Newark, North Star. Yes, you're right. Yeah. So um, we met each other in, I'm going to say, so you, can, you can check me. I think maybe 2005, six. Because you were you were definitely still in Newark, and we were going out uh, to see the football matches at Rooney's, and we just a few of us just sort of stumbled upon each other because we had that same interest. Um, so it's been about fifteen years, I think. That's yeah, right? you are in fact probably one of my oldest friends as a result. Yeah, uh, I, I, I've I've mentioned that with a few with a few people that I've known. Um, only a little bit longer, like um, my my Turkish friend Arkin and a few of those guys. But yeah, it's been it's been it's been a while. Uh, but yeah, that's how um, that's how we met. And I th the the one of the interesting things about that time is, as I mentioned, you know the the Highlands Bunker started uh, in your basement as a podcast, but it's not the first podcast we ever recorded in your home. No, uh, it was a, it was a glorious period of time and it just shows how things come and go but if you remember we we began to assemble in this pub and it, it was good because everyone supported different teams it wasn't like it was a, a tribe of one group and we all got on so 
sort of well. And as a result, we, we sort of elevated ourselves into an institution, which we eventually called the Politburo, because, well, we called it the Politburo. There's a story behind that, but I don't know what the hell the story is. I mean, I think it's it was pretty. I, Josh and I came up with it. Obviously, our our our, our late dear friend uh, Joshua Lindsay. Left leaning radicals. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're you're just as left. I mean, you're probably not as left as Josh and I. Uh, uh, peace be upon him. But but yeah, we just thought it would be funny to call it the Politburo. Uh, plus, like, if people started calling it that, we knew it would like annoy. We knew it would be like a minor annoyance for the people who knew what it was, but a lot of people wouldn't. And so, and so it was really not a lot of thought went into it, but I remember like you were, you were kind of the one who was a, a more of like a coordinator or organizer. So, you know, you'd go to the, to the pub manager to make sure that it was going to be open for an early match or if we could put the schedule on their website or whatever it was. And so like you were like, yeah, it's, it's the Politburo. He's like, oh, that's cute. What's that? And you're like, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll always look at the look on his face. He said, that's cute. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. You know, and I, now looking back, if that had ever been traced back to my citizenship application. Uh, see, so you were worried about all my, of this my, subversive you stuff. Got my wife scared for many years. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think that's how the whole, the whole friendship, at least in the neighborhood began with all, with all the fellas and everybody going down to the pub. And, and we were all sort of like, um, Generally, in in uh, in corporate professional jobs, but very sort of like uh, subversive, I guess we all we all had similar politics, similar left wing politics. Some people were more certainly more radical than others, but but yeah, it was a, it was a very very interesting time. You know, we well, got it certainly was, and I look back now and think, not how did we get away with it so much as wow, we we really we really created an institution that. It was like an empire. It came and it went. And I like that. I like the fact that it eventually just closed down. Bang, it was gone, you know? Yeah, you wrote a, um, you wrote a, uh, one of the other things, you know, we've talked about the, the wide range of formats that your, your writing and your creative endeavors have taken. Um, one of them is the postcard. Uh, uh, where, you know, there was actually, there's actually several kinds. I, I think I should set this up because uh, it sort of explains the way you think and uh, creatively, and it also sort of explains our relationship too, I think. Um, you would come up with the postcard, which uh, in its simplest form was like a meme in real life. So there would just be this, you know, photo that, uh, or, or, you know, cartoon with a caption. Um, but it would only be an inside joke to like 30 people or 40 people, and we would pass these cards around the pub as like, like early internet, non-internet memes. But then you also, uh, I guess when you were sort of organizing a lot of just stories of your life, um, started putting them like sh five paragraph essays, but sh very short that would fit on a card that you would send to somebody with one contained um, brief essay about an, an event or an episode you'd experienced. Um, and in the middle of that, there's the postcard with the poem on it. I'm going to read this because I don't, I don't know if you recall giving it to me, but for uh, Su nurse Susan and I, for our wedding, uh, we're given this, 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 this postcard. And it, it's, 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 it's so touching because on one side of it is a photo of nurse Susan and me upstairs at the Belfont cafe. I remember uh, that day. Yeah. We used to go every year on new year's Eve. 
and they had a pool table there and Susan's all uh, all dressed up and we have pool cues and it's sort of like this like candid shot that you took. Uh, but then you wrote us a, you wrote us a, um, a poem for our, our, our wedding. So I'm going to read it. You ready? Uh, Ear what, St. Paul? Love is a goat that looks at the watch or a stubborn, foolish donkey or any combination in between. But love is also crystal clear in making sense of incomprehensibleness. Unconfused for sugar joy, it lives in the moment to skip the road with all one's juice, squeezed as it is from interself, giving all and never taught to celebrate a happy monster born. I love that. So I, I hope everybody. That, so that was a, a poem that that, that Bert uh, sort of gave to Susan and me. But uh, yeah, it was really touching. I still have it out uh, by my stereo with all my albums. Uh, and yeah, it's it's just um, it's a it's a cool thing. How many years did we go to Belfont Cafe for New Year's? Three, four. Yeah, about that. Yeah, it, it used to be a very nice place for New Year's Eve because it was low key, and yet yeah. it was goofy, and it was it was everything, you know. But things change. But you know yeah. that poem, let me tell you. Um, I wrote it because when you go to a lot of weddings, especially church weddings, they read the one of the letters from Paul to one of his... Yeah, faith, hope, and love, these three, but yeah, the greatest... There are, so yeah, love is the greatest... What yeah. is I'm, I'm empty as a non-banging gong. It was going on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I wrote it back to St. Paul and said what my concept of love was and that's what it was and you know that i read the same poem at my daughter's wedding valerie's wedding in new york well i will say this i don't think my recollection because i was at val's wedding in new york was that you you use some of the same lines because i noticed there's some there's some language that you sort of um sort of created in that poem that i noticed that you used again but i don't think i think i don't think it was the same uh, I, I think it was a little longer, and I don't think it was exactly the same. Yeah, I think I added a coda at the end about them. But let me tell you something about poetry. Poetry, and you probably know this, is the art of revision. So you can start writing a poem, and two years later, you're still writing it. Now, I've always firmly believed that to be true. Some people would crucify me for saying that, because they say, once the muse strikes, whatever you write down, it is sacred. Well, that's why we have the Bible and stuff like that that starts world wars, because people do not stray, not stray, but do not evolve from what was originally written. So you're right. But the gist of that poem, love is a goat that looks at a watch or a stubborn, stubborn, foolish donkey or any combination in between. That's when the muse struck. And I think the rest sort of floated out. Yeah, hey, you and Susan, one and the Valerie and Sean, you know. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It, it was great, and 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 to juxtapose that against, um, well, I'll tell this story, uh, and then we can talk about some of the other sort of technical writing that you've done. Mm -hmm. um, I was reading uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer for some reason. Uh, I guess it was on the bus, or I had picked it up somewhere, and there was an obituary of uh, a guy who had a big uh, had a huge uh, funeral and it was just talking about his life and that his the, the most important piece of professional work that he did was this long manual on glass lined industrial equipment that he co-authored with Bertram Monitz and I'm like it's got to be him 
and 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 yeah, you were mentioned in this guy's in this guy's obituary as a co-author of like his life's work. Um, who who was this guy? How did you get involved with him? And um, yeah, and just maybe talk about a little bit about some of the some of the technical writing that you that you've done that we always uh, we always bring up because we think it's so funny. Well, you know, Rob, um, it goes back to my feeling that yeah, I can write. I'm not showing off. I can write because I always wanted to write. You know, despite what my parents tried to do to me, so I can write because I enjoy writing. That's why. Secondly, I've got some technical skills, so why wouldn't I want to write them down so people could use them? But I'm again, I'm I'm always for the the working stiff. That that's the person I want to help the most, the person who does the work. Well, this was a case where we use a lot of glass line equipment in Dupont because we use it for product cleanliness. There's there's all kinds of good reasons, and it's it's um, a complicated commodity, to say the least. But I was supposed to be the guy made sure it didn't fail and supposed to know a lot about it. Well, I, I met Sal Falcone, Salvatore Falcone. Uh, he worked for a company called De Dietrich, which was a glass-lined equipment company. And he was an older guy, and he was revered in the industry. And he and I got on very well, and he helped me a hell of a lot. And then when he retired, it was near end of retirement because he worked late, um, he said, you know, I'd, I'd love to get this down because I want my grandchildren to know what I did. And I said, wow, shit, you know, I think between us, we can get it down. So we wrote this tome on glass line equipment because there was no other book about it in the industry. And I worked with Sal. You know, I used to go up to New Jersey, exit eight, like you know those exits, Monroe Township. And I'd drive up there during the day and uh, we'd sit at his kitchen table and his big dog would slobber over me and his wife would feed me coffee and cake and we just write this shit down. So when the book came out, Sal was so damn proud. You know the Pomodoro on Union Street? Yeah. yeah. We went there to celebrate. He came down from New Jersey and we just celebrated with this book. But I could tell he was pleased at punch. Well, seven or eight years later, he dies. I know we'd lost touch. And Loretta... Um, I heard it work. Someone said, hey, he died, you know. I said, Jesus Christ, really? And Loretta said, you've got to go to that funeral. Because she knew the, feel, the, the mutual feeling Sal and I had. So we went up to New Jersey. And uh, sitting there, we didn't know anyone. And except Edith, his wife, of course. And there's this book by the casket. And I said, Jesus Christ, that's the book, Loretta. And she says, you've got to say something. I said, what? He said, yeah, when his time comes, stand up. So I said, yeah, I didn't know Sal very well. But, you know, this book, and I, I was telling him the story about going up to exit 8A and, you know, sitting down, and his dog started slobbering over me. And then I started slobbering like the damn dog. I just lost it. I started bawling. And I said, you haven't, you haven't cried like that since your dad died. But that's how I felt about this old man, you know? Yeah. Wonderful old man. And I... I've always gravitated to people who roll their sleeves up and then I can do something with them. Because what I can give to them maybe is something of the communication aspect, whereas they've got the skill. So you could say I'm a leech. Yeah. 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 Well, that, I mean, the, 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 the most famous of your works that comes up all the time is, is a very uh, used, and it's, I don't know how many editions that it's been, but the, there's, a, there's a welding manual that's 
that, that's used uh, a lot in the industry. I know you've signed one for uh, uh, for my father-in-law because he does welding. That. Yeah, so he has a he has a signed Bert Manitz, uh you know instructions in welding one. Um, it's just, it's just amazing. And the fact that we found out much later after this manual has been in several editions that you've never welded anything in your life. That's right. And, uh, I'm proud to say that I have never raised a stick. So, <laughs> but you know, I know a lot of people I have and, uh, I work with them and this publishing company really what they wanted out of me was more the theoretical aspects of welding that they could meld into the very practical book they had. And funnily enough, the book has done enormously well. And it's done so well that I said to Loretta, you know, we can't use this. We've got to do something with people with it. So we started a charitable foundation, the Manise Family Foundation. But really, it was to fund, fund foreign wars, you know. <laughs> Of course. Oh, I, I mean, I mean as, a, as a journalist, I will have to say that somebody who's worked in resource extraction overseas and then started a foundation here in the United States, you, I mean, you've, you've been doing subversive work. I have, yes. But again, I did manage to become a citizen. So yeah. I didn't tread over that territory. What gave you the idea of the, of the, of the cabaret, of the art cabaret? Because I need to explain to people sort of what they what they were um so it was just amateur artists that would put on a show uh, uh you know a program that Bert would produce uh at a at a pub or a bar or something like we did a bunch at Jackson Inn and different ones but it was just all like dramatic poetry readings it was um covers of songs original songs there was uh there was one act plays um, there were all just all kinds of stuff, but you you put on probably, I don't know, over over ten of them, a dozen of them maybe. Uh, I'm just I've interested. About Fifteen or so, but you know, no, it's not a matter of numbers; it's a matter of what people get out of them, you know. Yeah, it was just this idea that um, a bunch of us who had a proclivity for either writing or music or just putting together something kind of fun. You know, uh, you'd write sort of a vaudeville spoof that you would do with somebody as a closing act all the time. Um, but to get, you know, 30, 40, 50 people to turn out, I mean, we had some in Hummingbird to Mars um, that were just packed. Uh, and you wouldn't think it's just such a it's such a unique sort of thing. No, you know, there, there's nothing else like that now. There wasn't anything like that before. Um, yeah. What was the genesis of that idea? I, I remember when you sort of started it, but I don't remember like how how it came about and who you were talking to. Well, that came about because I was having a chat with a, one of our Politburo friends, a Russian named Anton. Oh, yes. And he's he's a very literary guy, by the way. His dad is a English professor or a professor of literature somewhere. But he's very much into poetry. And he said, you know, I, I know you write some poetry, but how can we get poetry you know, to the ordinary person. And we came up with this idea called poetry with a pint, but it was poetry with a point. We inserted the little point in the pint. And so we, we approached the, the good owner of the, of the of, yeah, it was Rooney's at the time, Mr. McCoy, and said, could we have a show upstairs in the little nightclub? And he said, sure, sure. You know, so we went up there and that's when we started with poetry, but we added song, 
we had a talking about someone who had a painting and they wanted to talk about a painting. So it, it gradually enlarged to little one-act plays, like you say. And the whole idea was we would find people whom we knew who weren't professional, but certainly pursued something to a level where they were pretty good at it, good enough that they would want to entertain. And then it was just a matter, Rob, really, of pulling it together. So it was what I always said was the show would move at a pace where if you didn't like something that was just on, it would be over pretty soon. So you'd hang around for the next act. And they became cabarets. That's what they are, yeah. cabarets. Yeah, I, I met a lot of great people, and, and it, it, it really worked out just the way that, again, because you were involved in producing it, I just remember meeting people that I still know just in the neighborhood. Uh, I know Dallas, who I guess you knew uh, from a, another poetry group. He's, just, he's a bus driver in Wilmington. I see him, so, see him on the bus. I'm like, that's the, that's the poetry guy, Dallas. He's, the, he's on the bus. Like, it's just it's a real sort of working man's sort of just fun time. But, you know, uh, you know, Melissa would sing opera. Uh, somebody would just jump. Somebody would just jump on the piano from the crowd and play. You know, it was it was really it was just a fun thing. But it was and there was always a theme. You know, it was usually some, some sort of uh, some sort of, uh, you know, as you do, you know, a, a, a double edged sort of double entendre theme where it's it's a little bit subversive, it's like the Politburo, like. Is it subversive? Do people know what it is? You know, it was sort of always like that, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I still would like to do some more, but, I, you know, things run their course, so you never know. With the pandemic, um, maybe it's killed that whole idea. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, everything's kind of changed, but and, and it's – and it. You know what you said about sort of the, the, the group we had at the pub for those stretch of years um, kind of – got real big and then sort of uh, like like the fall of the Roman Empire you know you can only you can only burn so bright so long before you burn out um, That's great. better yeah. burn out than uh, just you know keep going just for the sake of it you know yeah for sure for sure so uh how are your daughters because I know uh you you you're you're close with them they're both in New York yeah um, they both live in Brooklyn we haven't seen them since uh, since February so How's we, that? We, went, we went to England in February. My mother-in-law was, wasn't doing very well. So the four of us went to see her. We spent about four lovely days with her. She was in the assisted living at the time. Yeah. Then we came home, and four days later, she died. So, yeah, yeah, I remember right at the beginning of the, yeah. right at the, beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, before we managed to get out before. We wouldn't have been able to go back for the funeral, I don't think. So, no. No, I remember just the, the timing was, was good, especially um, you know for Loretta, because I had met I had met her the year before uh, at at, uh, at Val's wedding. That's right. Yep, and 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 yeah. So it was just the very next year. Yeah, I'm glad they're doing well. I I, I haven't, and I guess that's the thing too is I, I usually see them from time to time either in New York or here in some fashion, whether it's around the holidays or we go up and they're you know we're we're doing something up there. But uh, yeah, this whole this this whole pandemic has really locked us down. But they've chosen Brooklyn. And they love it. So, you know, in fact, they've moved into little, they bought condos now. So yeah. they're living there. They're adults. They're paying a mortgage. Yeah. They're, they're putting down roots a little bit earlier than I guess, I guess you did. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, too, is not only um, just professionally did you move around, but you really have, uh, you really have traveled the world. 
Um, I, I, you know, I don't, um, oddly now, have you ever been back to India? No, Loretta's been a few times. Right. Just with uh, assistance, you know, things like that. But right. I, no, I've never had a desire to go to India. But go to, I used to go to England every year, you know. I mean, right. You do that, to, that tour. Yeah. 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 Or France. I mean, you can't go with the English guys either to, to the yeah, south of France. Way, or... I, yeah, I'm a Francophile. So I, I, I've been to France several times before that. Continue. My favorite place, I think our favorite place is probably the southern part of France. Not the Riviera so much, but just that southern area in France, Languedoc and places like that, Provence. They just, yeah. just so peaceful, you know. Yeah, I know also you're a, and I, I've mentioned this because we have a, a very good friend um, actually down there now, uh, Maria Beauchamp, but I know you're a, a big fan of, of Puerto Rico too uh, and the, the old city. And, and I know that's a place you always try to get to as much, as, or you, you you did try to get to as much as you can. I guess you went there when you were working too, right? Yeah, that that's how I got to know it because I, we had a, we used to have a plant on the, on the island. And, you know, you'd go and you'd hang out and meet people. So... Yeah, it's it's really it's really a, a crazy little island, and you know, the, the way they hover between statehood and Commonwealth status, and you know they play all the numbers. You know. Yeah, we're we're trying to get Maria back on. She actually they, she worked with a group there in Puerto Rico that has basically stood up a new sort of leftist political party. Um, their two political parties were even more sort of two sides of the same coin as, as ours. And they only differed a little bit and they would kind of go back and forth. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that this new sort of political push in Puerto Rico does something with that sort of vacillation and that the people of Puerto Rico get either statehood or independence or, you know, whatever they want. I, I feel like this middle way has been a real, um, you know, it's been a real burden. I mean, we, we're keeping a colony, as you said. Your your life began with, you know, the British the British Empire sort of pulling back. Um, of course, that created, uh, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, uh, violent partitions of the 20th century, probably. Um, we're, yeah, and we're still dealing with the the impacts, uh, you know, today. I mean, we have disputed Kashmir. Uh, Kashmir is still there. They know who. Two nuclear powers. Um, you have a, a, a right-wing sort of reactionary fascist in, in India. Um, you've had, you know, different other kinds of problems in Pakistan. Um, Bangladesh obviously is probably going to be underwater in 15 years. So yeah, that's a real controversial place, and I'm hoping that um, that the folks in, in in Puerto Rico get some kind of uh, some kind of joy from their situation without a lot of um, without a lot of heartache and pain yeah they're, they're lovely people they really are uh the one the one other uh piece of work that you've done that i that i wanted to touch on uh, is the the brief i guess sort of uh a book about your mom uh, it's, it's a biography but it's 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 more of um just sort of social interactions and just getting the essence of a person um it has a great title which um i actually think is is part of uh it's part of the lore of this podcast anyway. You know, you do it and then you, you split. But uh, tell everybody what the title is and a little bit about your mom and how that project came together. Well, my mother was quite, quite a lady, by the way. Um, and she, she was very strong-willed, to say the least. 
And she started writing her biography, autobiography, in a yellow notebook in her 80s. And she'd done a few things by then. For example, after, my, after Dad died, she was alone in Canada for a while, and she got a bit lonely, and she um, decided to go to Australia because she had friends there. So she went to Australia on her own. That's what she did. She went to Australia, uh, went to both coasts, and she met some friends. And more importantly, she met a guy she knew in India years ago. Their families knew each other. He was an Anglo-Indian too. They'd come to Australia in the 60s when the white Australia thing was lifted. So his family had grown up there. And they, his wife died. But he was a Jehovah's Witness. And it wasn't just because of that. My mother was a Catholic for years, but she detested Catholicism. And when my dad died, she went to the priest, and he suffered a bit before he died there. A very brave man, wonderful man. And she said, well, at least he's in heaven now, Father. And the priest says, oh, no, he's got to go to purgatory first. <laughs> that was the equivalent of saying, fuck it. Because yeah. she said, I don't think I want to stay in this crowd anymore. So she was looking. She needed religion because she loved discipline. So she was toying with being a Jehovah's Witness. Reggie was a witness. His wife had converted him from Catholicism. So anyway, the upshot is she gets married at the age of 72 to Reggie and moves to Australia. And she stayed there till he died. So she was there 14 years in Australia, basically. So anyway, she was writing her life story, which talked about India and independence. So it was a pretty interesting life. You know, all the things she'd been through coming to Canada. And she was very strong, strong worded. And, and she said, had a little, a little um, tile, or a tile, a little picture in her room where she was staying in the assisted living place in Toronto. And it said, speak the truth and then leave immediately after. <laughs> Which was absolutely true. If you went and bullshitted my mom, she'd say, leave. Yeah. So my daughter, Carol, had taken a picture of this of her holding it up. So when she finished her notebook, which she hadn't quite finished, I had to get a little bunch of letters from Australia that she'd written back and forth to complete the Australian part of the book. because She stopped writing when she got there. Um, I started to edit it. Carol, first of all, transcribed it into a Word document, which was a tremendous undertaking. Still grateful to her. And then we started filling it up with pictures and little segments of her life story. So that's how it came to be. And then we had to call it, of course, Speak the Truth, but leave immediately after. Yeah, so it's that's a lovely a... little book, I think. Personally. I do too. I do too. And, and of course, I... I had I I knew you know I I I knew you you were born in India, uh, I knew sort of your story and I knew at that time uh, that your mom had moved back to t Canada from Australia but that's it and so to to get some of those stories especially going back to the partition like we talked like we talked about and then just you know just get um you know just sort of like a diary of somebody who's been all over, sort of like you've been all over. That's why we're well, doing this. You know, we all live through history, don't we? And we, we don't recognize it because we think our lives are so mundane and normal and not like famous people. But I think everyone can make their life into stories. And the reason I, as you know, the reason I started doing the postcards was I didn't want to write an autobiography. That's too much hard work for us. So I would just pick an element in life people I knew, a lot of it's about people, you know, who have affected me or influenced me. 
into a little story. And that's why now I've got about a couple hundred postcards, which I'll keep in a shoebox, and that'll be my legacy. Well, I was going to ask you a question about that, because I don't know if you're familiar, but we actually have a, a platform on which we, we publish things now. And uh, yes, I, I don't know if you've, uh, you, you may have heard it's the, yeah, I've stopped reading the guardian now and I read yours. Instead. That's right. Delawarecall.com. It's better oh. than the guard, like, just like the guardian only, uh, Wilmington. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's funny because you gave me a few of them, um, to look at. And of course, sometimes you write them and, and uh, either you send them to us or, um, or it's about, you know, something that we know about. So you share them. Um, but a lot of them are, 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 I mean, and you know this already, but they're, they're very good um, because it, it, it gives you a, a very succinct um, sort of story, but also um, there's, a, there's a message in it. And it's not, um, it's not heavy handed. It's, it never preaches, notably, and it's very subtle. But it's it's an interesting story told in a very succinct way. But also, there's like a little a little lesson or something that you think about that there's a there's a there's a real theme to it, and they're they're extremely interesting. And if you ever want to see one in pixels on the Delaware Call, um, I have a couple favorites I think. But but we could talk about that. But it's a, it's just an interesting way. I mean, you've said that before to me. Uh, you know, if I'll be reading a book, you're like, I don't I don't write. Uh, books anymore, and I don't read anything book length. It's, it's essays, news, and, and 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 poetry and postcards. That's it. Yeah. Well, there's an evolution too, because the, I think what you just mentioned that the ending has got to be have a philosophical twist based around the story. Otherwise, I don't think it grabs people, and it can't be just about me. It's got to be reaching out so that there's some aspect of life that people can relate to. And we all relate to stuff, you know, we, we all know what it's like, you know, to be waiting at the bus stop, bursting down a peak, you know. So I'm not saying I'm going to write a postcard about that, but I could. But the twist at the end, the philosophical twist, is really was born out of poetry, because poetry does that to you. You know, it makes you think at the end. So that the postcard is really an evolution. But I like the format, because it's only about 250 words. And that's more than enough for me. Then I'm on. I'm on to the next thing. You know? Yeah, you do. You, you definitely have to to uh, to move on. I, I, one of the things um, I will tell you that that some of us were were, were worried about when when COVID started um, was that uh, you know as the elder elder states person of our crew, um, you know we wanted to make sure you weren't running around because you know you're you're someone who always has their hand and you're producing a, an art cabaret you have meetings your, your your calendar was always full of meetings and i was just people were like are, are we going to be able to keep bert safe keep him keep him healthy and safe um but i think you 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 came to it okay but i know that those first couple of months uh i know were were, were a difficult transition for you well yeah very difficult because you know um we all love music, but I especially love music. And I would go down to Galusio's, the open mic, or, or those other evenings they'd have, or go to the Nomad Bar, which I really hope comes back live one day. That's such an institution. Yeah. But those places for live music in Delaware, local people doing the local stuff, is what I love the most. And that was tough, just, you know, having to pull away from all of that. But, hey, I want to be alive too, you know, because uh, I've got a couple more things to do. Yeah, I mean, you, we've uh, 
I'll, I'll tell one more story, and I don't know if I remember the whole thing, but it's funny, and I think it's a good, it's a good way to to to, to end it. We uh we went to a show in Philadelphia. I don't remember the band. I think it was at World Cafe Live on the Penn campus. You drove. Uh, it was, I think, Susan, Nurse Susan, me, my brother Kenny, and you, I think. And I think we took Dami. I'm not sure. We may have taken Dami. So we're in a Prius coming back down 95 from Yale Prius days. Back down 95 from Philadelphia at midnight, whatever it was. Now, we had a great time drinking. Uh, you know, you, you, you were driving, so you were fine, but... There was some issue. I don't know if it was construction or, or an accident. 95 is closed, um, uh, you know, in Delaware County somewhere. So we knew the way to get through, like, Marcus Hook and come out and claim on. So we're, we're, we're riding through Marcus Hook on a Thursday or Friday morning at, like, you know, midnight, half past midnight. All of a sudden, we get pulled over by a Marcus Hook police officer. Do you remember this? Now I'm I'm fucking high as fuck. I'm in I'm in the back seat. I think Susan was in the front seat. So here's Susan, you know, my age in the front seat. Bert, 70 years old, little English dude in driving. Dommy's like a six foot five black dude from has a has the heaviest Manchester accent I've ever heard in my life. My brother is a white dude with dreadlocks and me. This fucking guy looks in the car, this cop looks in the car, and it was just like what is happening? Now, again, we were profiled because we had Delaware tags. I think he saw, like, I think we got profiled. But then when he realized it was, like, <laughs> it wasn't what he thought it was, he just let us go. I know. Well, luckily, you had a, an old man in the front driving and a white woman in the front. So I think whatever was in the back of that damn car, he probably said, oh, yeah. they must be, uh, angry. <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, I, and I, I, I do think sometimes it would have, if, if we did all get uh, thrown in the who's cow, it would have made a great postcard. Yeah, would have made for me being deported probably. But <laughs> now, the thing there was, we did see it was the Whalers. Oh, it was the Whalers. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Of Marty's group, yeah. And That's fact, right. we saw the tour bus. Remember, we saw that guy. <clears throat> well, the best show that you and I saw there, and I'm pretty sure you're there, we saw Black Ahuru there. Oh, was it Black Ahuru there? Well, I, we saw both of them there. Black Ahuru. Oh. Uh, was when we saw the bus and we saw the guy with the. With oh, thing. I'm sorry, I got it wrong then. Are yeah. you sure? I, I, we saw them both there. It wasn't the Whalers then. No, I tell you, I saw the Whalers at the Queen, and I was very disappointed. I was at that show too, and I was also uh, disappointed yeah, because they keep changing up the they keep changing up the personnel exactly. and calling them the Whalers. No, you're right. It was Black Uhuru. You're right. Yeah, Black Uhuru was a, was an incredible show. Maybe one of the better shows I've seen inside of a little club like that. Just because I do like that, I like that rock steady music anyway. That kind of reggae. Um, so yeah, that was a fun time, and I, I think yeah, and again, upstairs was that upstairs in the World Cafe, not the downstairs. I think it was downstairs. Oh, was oh, okay. Yeah, yeah because yeah. that's a bigger place. Yeah. But yeah, we're coming back from like a reggae rock steady show and get pulled over in Marcus Hook. I'm like Bert, get us out of this. <laughs> well, we we have survived these years. Our friendship has survived. Yeah, our friendship has survived. I mean, at this point, it's probably going it, to... It, I don't see it going anywhere, Bert. Yeah, it's good for the duration. Yeah, we might as well. We're in now. We're, we're in all, now, yeah. We're, we're, in. we're married. That's it. <laughs> I'll tell Loretta. Yeah, please do. Bert, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for everything you do for 
the neighborhood, uh, for uh, just the, the movement. You you have your you have your fingers in the in, in in the in the process here and there. It's just sort of like your professional work. Um, you know, you just made sure that the uh, that the equipment didn't fail and that people understood how to use their uh, how to use their welding sticks. Yeah, um, but now my, my equipment is all starting to fail. You know, I'm getting to that age, so. Yeah. Well, uh, there, there, down that road, we all are traveling. Uh, you know, you, you just saw me try to work a kink out of my back, so. <laughs> no, I can give you a few tips. I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, once again, man, I, I'm really, uh, I, I'm glad that you did this for the 100th one. Well, um, this is such an honor. Thank you. Well, it was, you know, it was, it was just so great for you to give us a place to, uh, to sort of set up originally to get the idea off the ground. Um, and it was a great, it was just great to do it because this, uh, you know, um, you had a background in sort of producing, you know, other things and, and letting people's ideas sort of germinate and grow. And, and so, um, I know I very much appreciated all of our comrades and colleagues appreciate it because, um, you're always there for support and everything. And, um, I and yeah, you always, bro. I will always be there. Well, thanks, thanks, thanks for doing this with us, ladies and gentlemen. Um, our great friend and patron Bertram Monitz on the 100th episode of the Highlands Bunker podcast. Just remember, Bert was at the non-strikers end. I just nudged the single and we ran a quick one, put my bat up, but uh, now it's on to 200. So now we got to we got to stick in and uh, and try to stay out there and bat as long as we can. Bert, thank you very much. Well, bye, everybody. Left is best. Um, because it, it, it gives you a, a very succinct, 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 succinct.